0: Welcome to season four of Libya Matters. In this season, we're looking at what justice really means. More
1: than a decade after the 2011 uprising, after more than four armed conflicts, after at least three international political processes, and impunity for uncountable violations of human
0: rights law and international humanitarian law. With an incredible lineup of guests,
1: we reflect on all this and the findings of LFJL's year-long survey all across Libya on what Libyans' perceptions of justice are 10 years on.
0: All with the aim of bringing a nuanced understanding to all matters Libya. I'm Marwa Mohammed And I am Ilham Saoudi. Let's go. Hi, Marwa. I know you've been waiting for this one.
1: Hi, Ilham. Definitely, this is the one that I've been waiting for.
0: So long-term listeners of Libya Matters will know that Marwa has led the demand for a special court for Libya since episode four with Carla Firstman. And today we're going to get stuck into it. We will get into what makes a special court special, what it can bring that other courts can't, and whether it's the right time to consider a special court for Libya.
1: I'm really excited about this and, of course, our guest, one of the best people we can hope to unpack this topic with us. So let's get started.
0: I'm not going to lie. I'm really excited about this one, too. Stephen Rapp has been on my dream list for a very, very long time to host on the podcast. He doesn't need an introduction, but I will take the pleasure in providing one anyway. He is uh, currently a senior visiting fellow at Oxford University Center for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. He's senior fellow at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum Center for the Prevention of Genocide. He's also the chair of the Commission for International Justice and Accountability. Previously, he was the U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice under the Obama administration. And for the purposes of this episode, he is particularly um, the right person to speak to because he has effectively been in the prosecution side for some of the most well-known of special courts, that for Sierra Leone, um, where he led the prosecution of uh, Charles Taylor. And also he was a, a senior trial attorney at the tribunal for Rwanda. I am stumbling over my words from the length of this CV, but suffice to say, we did really well here. Welcome, Stephen.
2: Good good to be with you, uh, Helen and and Marwa.
1: We're really excited to have you here. So welcome um, and welcome to Libya Matters.
2: Good to be with you.
1: So today we have so much we want to discuss with you when it comes to the special courts. But maybe as a starting point, we start at the beginning. Why are special courts needed? When is that decided? When is the right time? And how does that happen? How do they come to form?
2: Well, special courts are, are in my view, the the preferable alternative to enforcing international criminal law and achieving some prosecutions of of senior leaders and uh, laying the foundation really for for solid national transitional justice Mm -hmm. because they are, um, at least in the precedents we have, Uh, built in the nation that's been affected by the conflict, close to the victims, uh, close to where all the horrible things happen. And the design of them is to involve, to the maximum extent possible, the people of that country, obviously as victims, often sometimes, of course, as as alleged perpetrators, Mm -hmm. uh, but also as judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys and uh, investigators and witness protection people and and, and everything else. And the hope in that is that uh, the justice that's achieved usually in a relatively brief period uh, after the end of a conflict, will um, be something that helps the judicial system in that country and the rule of law generally, and the the whole system of, of effective and responsive governance work better in the future. And, and leave a legacy with many people that were involved in the court who then go on to work in other positions in that society, sometimes in the justice system, sometimes dealing with crimes that aren't international crimes of torture and murder or mass killings, uh, but are questions of stopping uh, uh, other uh, uh, bad uh, forms of, of conduct and, and protecting uh, their their communities. Mm. Uh, and so what you hope is that you develop that that legacy. Mm. The other alternatives at the, at the high end are in international Like that, obviously, that's involved in in Libya since the Security Council voted 15 to 0 in 2011 to send the case to the ICC, though we don't have any anybody in custody uh, still uh, Mm. uh, fully 11 years later. But uh, even if a court like that proceeds, you get only a handful of of cases. And it's all done at a distance. And even though the court can try to project itself and have outreach meetings and do things back and forth and maybe have a hearing or two in the country, though that's not been done yet by the ICC, Mm. it's pretty far away and pretty distant. And, And also, It's possible for the defendants, particularly if the justice is coming from another continent, to say this is foreign to us. Uh, We're being, uh, this is like the the Italian invasion a century ago. I mean, somebody's doing it to us. It's not us that are doing it to our own. Country or you know a, performing a process, so that's a, it's so easy and we've we've seen that the way the ICC in the Libya case for instance or not the Libya case the Kenya case the mm. the political <laughs> leaders on who's who at least followers who were committing massive crimes against each other uh, ended up uniting against the court and sort of running against it as uh, as colonial institution mm. uh, not fair but it certainly uh, made it very difficult for the court to succeed and it didn't. And so that's the problem with an international court. Mm. Of course, on the other hand, the quality of the justice, the the soundness of the of the of the decisions, some of which can be quite unsatisfying, you know, are um, presumably better at an international court. Mm. The the alternative is a purely national system of justice, and you know there there have been places where that's occurred. Mm. I mean, we think most prominently have countries in Latin America where that's been possible, though not always. Argentina, where they where they prosecuted hundreds of people that were involved in the military junta between seventy six and eighty three that you know killed and dropped out of helicopters at sea, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people that were received to be leftist enemies. Mm. You know, That has worked to a point. On the other hand, people are always saying, but what about the violations on the other side? And usually in the national system, it becomes kind of one-sided according to what the, the politics of the successor regime is, even though I think in, in, in Argentina, they, they largely have it right. Mm. But there's that problem of those sorts of processes. Mm. And so that's a, and, and of course they, usually don't arise until 30 or 40 years afterwards when there's been almost a generational change in the country the special court can get in sooner
0: yeah I think you're picking up on a a lot of the questions we want to get to so I just want to I want to pause there and I'm now sensing that my role in this episode is to be the party pooper on special courts just to bring some form (laughs) of balance because I know uh, Marwa is a a clear advocate for this so I think I just wanted to pick up on a point you know that you were saying about special courts being sort of closer to home and and more of, of real justice but that's not historically been the case for, for a lot of the special courts, right? I mean, the most probably famous historical or the first historical reference we use in as students of law and transitional justice is to look at the Nuremberg trials. And those were a bit more distant than I think people would have liked. And also, you know, if you look at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, Again, that was not necessarily on domestic turf. And so I I think I want to believe your version of special courts, but I think we've also seen special courts that are quite remote and quite distant and, and have been criticized in many ways as being
2: sort of projects of the outside world. I just want to be clear about something. I mean, I don't view any of those as special courts. I mean, I I think they did very good work, but I view those as international tribunals Mm -hmm. that are formed outside a country in which the country's uh, representatives may play only a relatively minor role, and that's like my work at the Rwanda Tribunal. We didn't really have any Rwandan staff, even investigators, for about eight years Mm. uh, other than interpretation. And so that's the external thing, and the ICC is is that, other than, of course, Mm. in the case of many of its... Most of its prosecutions, it's, the, it's a country that's joined it as opposed to a country that where it's been sent, like by the Security Council. So uh, that's, they, you may see those as special in the sense that they are one-off. <laughs> they deal with Germany. They deal with Yugoslavia. They deal with Rwanda, et cetera. Mm. What I see as a special court uh, is really one that is hybridized in one way or another, that mixes together international and national elements. And that can be in a full range from ones that are sort of heavily internationalized or externalized and uh, in which basically uh, it's the national system with just some uh, some legal veneer and, and some personnel and funding all the way down to a situation where a uh, A country has established its own court under its own law, but has invited the participation of internationals among its staff and in an advisory process, etc. I'm not sure sometimes you even refer to that as hybrid, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd view, say, the the, uh, Iraqi high tribunal uh, that tried regime crimes, including famously Saddam Hussein, Mm -hmm. uh, viewed itself as a special court. Uh, but it was uh, entirely something that was in Iraq, albeit under a statute that many Iraqis thought was imposed by the occupational authorities, and had a lot of lawyers from those countries, particularly from America, mm. sort of sitting behind the judges and prosecutors. Mm. But it was all of the actors, the officials, were local. So I mean that's an, an imperfect example, but of the of a court that is really uh, quite domestic. But it, periodically, c- countries. I mean, for instance, Kenya in the Waki Commission which is a local truth commission that, that found uh, serious violations committed by political parties and their militia on both sides mm. that resulted in you know, around 1,300 deaths and 600,000 displacements. Mm. Their recommendation was a special court for uh, Kenya. And the politicians, I think, frankly, feared a special court for Kenya. And the slogan of their supporters became, don't be vague, take it to The Hague. You know? <laughs> and they thought that if it was taken to The Hague, they could roll it, so to speak. And uh, victims, of course, didn't trust anything that the Kenyan judiciary would come up with. So the victims got in on the act, too, and they said, take it to The Hague. Uh, and then of course, The Hague uh, messed it up. Uh, but uh, not when I say The Hague messed it up. The obstruction that was faced by the Hague, that was operating under rules like a social club—you know, where you're going to treats next week—and uh, expecting everybody <laughs> to cooperate—you uh, well, know—it was completely obstructed and without any real ability to compel cooperation or operate independently on the ground or to protect its witnesses, et cetera. Without without those witnesses being followed, mm. the Hague was rolled. So, what was designed, what was intended with the special court for Kenya, could have been entirely the best Kenyan judges and the and the best Kenyan prosecutors and investigators, etc., hmm. but doing it down the street. I think it would have needed some international assistance to succeed, but that international assistance would have been there working in partnership uh, with Kenyan actors who knew where the bodies were buried and knew who corrupt actors were and knew who could be trusted and who couldn't be. Now, that's, that's of course a bit of a dream, hmm. but uh, it's just an example of, of quite often the idealism of, of victims and others hmm. uh, and their distaste for the local, local system will sometimes send a case to the hague or they will maintain this dream that we can do it internationally for far too long mm. i mean a key example of that i think is the Yazidi in, in in iraq where um I mean, I remember visiting and even at the end of my ambassadorship and and in the years immediately thereafter, I left the State Department in 2015 meeting in, uh, with the Kurdish authorities mm. and encouraging them to set up a, a special court in the Kurdish region, which was allowed under their statute. Now, whether the international community was going to pay a lot because they were only a region and not a national government, Baghdad Baghdad didn't approve of it. But I said, get in international judges, do a model process, don't have the death penalty and all of this. Mm. And they could have. Done dozens of cases by now if they had done that. Uh, But the victims said, Oh, we don't trust any of these locals. Uh, Half the Yazidis said these Kurds betrayed us. Uh, We don't want them running the justice. And people said, Take it to the Hague. And I said, The Iraqis oppose that, and nobody's going to impose it on them in the Security Council. You're not going to get nine votes. And uh, to send it there. And moreover, uh, you know, the other alternative with, you know, my friend Amal Clooney pushed was let's find some foreign fighters in here, an Australian, a Tunisian, we'll find them from countries that are in the ICC hmm. and we'll send those to the ICC and those people can be prosecuted hmm. there. Uh, Fatou ben said, well, you know, you're, I'm supposed to do the major cases. <laughs> We're supposed to go after the top and you'll give me the hundredth worst guy, the 250th worst guy, the 350th worst guy, you know, but you won't get me, uh, you know, just because of where they came from. Mm-hmm. That's not the way I want to do a case. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that didn't, didn't work. And so we still don't have any adequate justice for a, a genocide mm-hmm. committed by a group that has not a friend in the world. You know, among the states, uh, unlike uh, other regimes, like in the Civil War in Libya, where there are states on on different sides supporting different factions in the in, in the armed conflict, which isn't finished, uh, which we hope would be uh, by the peace. But because of the democratic holdup, I, who knows? But I mean, you know, you, you've got uh, states that have interests and, and uh that are supporting different sides. And there are none, and we still couldn't get the job done. Uh, But in part, it was because the victims thought they they could get something better external, and and you're better working (laughs) internally and then finding that sort of level of partnership that will get you some good justice, not perfect justice, but localized justice, and that'll have a much better impact Uh, than waiting on the Hague.
0: You bring a a really interesting point there about trust and sort of the, you know, the kind of people trusting the domestic system enough to allow it to handle this. And I think, you know, that might be exactly the point at which point people request the Hague because there's some kind of concept that the domestic system, no matter how specialized it might be, won't serve the purpose, right, of justice. And, And I think one of the themes that has come up in our recent research looking at people's perceptions of justice over the last 10 years and how they've changed has reflected very heavily on the idea that there is a mistrust in the local judiciary and their ability to address such grave concerns. And also the point you also made that there is serious weakness in the legislation to be able to enable a lot of the prosecutions that would be Necessary, And so it, it kind of creates a situation where a specialized court, and I appreciate the distinction you're making between an inter- international one and a domestic one, but a, a one that is created for a specific purpose is needed, but there is still this lack of trust of the domestic. And so I, there is where I guess some of Marwa, your campaigning around looking at concept of hybrid courts is perhaps the sort of the better option in the Libyan context. Have I depicted that right, Marwa? <laughs>
1: So reflecting on, on what Stephen was saying and, you know, the different contexts that he highlighted where it worked or it didn't work and this kind of the question of the international versus the domestic and what that means in terms of legitimacy and acceptance and and all the conversations that come with this, I think that with the Libya context and what I have been pushing for definitely is this very much a hybrid situation, one, that there is local ownership to a certain extent, but also that would bring in the international elements as well.
3: Hi, my name is Sonia Markova and uh, I'm a research fellow with uh, the Lawyers for Justice in Libya. And I have uh, been working on the research on the justice perception in Libya. People really had, as it is, little trust in the Libyan criminal justice system because it's been inactive or they they saw that there's lots of uh, risk of interference within the justice process by different armed groups, militias um, and state actors. So there was a very little trust in the capability of the uh, Libyan courts to deliver justice, especially for serious crimes and especially for high-level perpetrators. But actually, it also was interesting to see the strong demand of people to have justice done in Libya within the Libyan justice system, but supported with the international community. For example. To give you the statistics, 80% believe that the Libyan criminal courts were currently incapable of delivering impartial and independent justice. But they also, a majority, believe that justice should be done by the Libyan courts with the support of the international community. Um, as over half of the respondents supported mixed courts to try human rights abuses and war crimes as opposed to the courts with uh, only Libyan judges or court with international judges.
1: I think that this conversation started in in season one years ago around my advocacy for a special court in Libya. I still don't have the perfect picture in my mind of what this would look like. And I don't think that it's up to me to imagine, um, to come up with that. But I do think that for that Libyan buy-in, it would have to have that hybrid aspect, but it would need to be a little bit of both for the Libyans to accept and and for that legitimacy question that that you raised, um, Stephen, in other contexts. Where it would be based, I think, again... You know, this question of trust in the judiciary, trust in the context of Libya today with the security situation, which ultimately is one of the biggest obstacles right now to many of those on the ground. The judiciary on the ground, be it, you know, the prosecutors, judges, and we saw up until recently around the, the talks of the elections, how this was imposing problem when it comes to security and the judiciary. So that raises the question of where would this court be placed? And then, you know, all the other kind of questions that come along with it. But I think that ultimately the question is essential in the Libya context is how and why and how, you know, there's definitely the political will behind this in order to establish something that we just frankly have not seen in the Libya context, that we see now so evidently in the Ukraine-Russia uh, context. So there's definitely the politicalization of courts that we're seeing now that has always been the case and why we haven't seen much of a buy-in for this in, in for Libya in the past.
2: Very good analysis, I think, of the questions also of the sort of the why and the how. And uh, I end up going into the why question at, at first, and this resumes uh, some level of political will to actually establish the whole thing. And we can deal with that in a moment, but just to deal with the design of the court and the location and the law and the participation and all of that, the why usually comes down to three things. Mm -hmm. Uh, The why can be legal in the sense that the domestic statute isn't, there wasn't a domestic statute, and there are legal problems often in various countries constitutionally, and Mm -hmm. though international law allows you to pass a retroactive statute in a national system that reflects international law as it was in effect at the time of the crimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many places are uncomfortable with that, and so If you go forward, usually in a purely national system, you are stuck with the law. that was on the books under Gaddafi or or whatever the previous regime was. Now, sometimes that statute was okay and and a model It just was uh, violated all the time. Sometimes that's not an issue, but quite often the crimes of sexual violence and other things may not be in there at all. And you may not have crime, unlikely to have crimes against humanity, uh, Mm -hmm. widespread systematic attacks against civilians. And certainly what was happening in in Libya at the beginning wasn't a war. (laughs) It was a political government, attacking people that that want to change. And that's not a war, you know, if those people are peaceful. And so those becomes potentially crimes against humanity. Very few countries have that on the books. And so, or did at the time that the, you know, before the crisis. Now, ICC member countries, about half of them have, uh, have updated their statutes. So you've got that legal issue. You may have issues over uh, immunities, and and less of an, a concern, I think, in, in Libyan context. But in other places, I'm heading to the Gambia next week, and uh, their constitution says you can't charge a head of a former head of state without a two-thirds vote of parliament. <laughs> you know, uh, and and everybody that ran the coup d'état with the former president uh, Jame, mm. uh and were part of a junta that that killed. The political opponents and former ministers, they all have immunity under the Constitution. Mm. And so you can't uh, change the statute <laughs> uh, and violate the Constitution. Maybe you get a new Constitution, but that looks like it's going to be too hard. Mm. So you have that legal issue. And the advantage of a, of a hybrid court is you can, by agreement with a third body, which in the case of Sierra Leone was the United Nations. In the case of, say, the court in Senegal that tried Habré, the dictator of, of Chad from uh, 1982 to 1990, in that situation uh, there had been a holding that you couldn't pass a retroactive statute in Senegal to prosecute hmm. by the ECOWAS court. And so you by establishing a treaty between the African Union and Senegal, you could put in a statute that had everything in it you wanted, <laughs> uh, including uh, international... Uh, theories of command responsibility and joint participation and other things that are quite important quite often in prosecuting these mass crimes or regime crimes or war crimes, because crimes aren't committed like ordinary crimes, which, you know, like a bank robbery with one guy holding a gun Mm -hmm. and another one handing over the money. They're not like that. They're committed by organizations and the participation of each person might be very, very important to mass killing at the end, but they didn't raise a gun. They didn't kill anybody themselves. And sometimes statutes won't We'll say, hey, who'd you kill? The <laughs> Germans had problems with that when we were confronting them in the 50s over Auschwitz and others. And they said, oh, no, who'd that guy kill? Well, he was part of a, a machinery that killed a million people at Auschwitz. Eventually, they began to <laughs> deal with it, but they still got stuck on who did he kill? On what day? And what was the number of that prisoner. And so international law can help you. So there is that legal need often to to do this. And sometimes that's the only need. (laughs) In the case of the Habre, which was external justice, he'd gone into exile in Senegal. Their judiciary was going to be fine in trying that case. (laughs) There was nobody that was going to be biased, I think, in in that matter. I mean, Habre tried to buy some supporters uh, over there, but it wasn't that big a deal. He wasn't a local guy. He didn't have a political movement there. And so they didn't need, uh, and they have good judges, and they get back relatively well paid. And so, you know, they were able to handle it fine. So it was only the law, but that meant you had to make a special chambers, in a court of an agreement between an international body and uh, the domestic system. And then that would have to be approved by the domestic parliament mm. and by the authority of the of the international body. Mm. That's the legal thing. The next thing is the capacity, and quite often, You don't have, no matter how hard you try, the capacity at the domestic level to do everything that needs to be done. Things like witness protection. You may have capacity also in terms of chasing up your fugitives that have gone off to other countries. A single country may not even have a mutual assistance treaty with with a country, you know, 500 kilometers away. Where the guy's living the life of Riley, as we would say, you know, spending the money he stole from the the people in that country. Mm -hmm. And you send a request to the capital of that other country and they don't really respond because that guy's got all sorts of friends there. And so, but if you have an internationalized court, you can develop a structure. You can have international personnel. You can have people from that country that you're trying to get help from. You can have a whole lot better in. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times when you do these national courts and countries say, we want to help you, Mm -hmm. everybody helps you in a different way. Most everybody wants to train everybody until the cows come home. Uh, but they don't establish that.
4: Established that.
2: <laughs> hey, we got some money yes. here to train you guys and what the law looks like. Oh yeah, well we we studied it for a while, you know, lordy, you know, just on and on because that's what that's what they give. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, we could use uh, an interpretation service. We could use, uh, you know, use a witness protection. You know, oh, we don't. That's not what we do. You know, and we prefer working with your national courts anyway, and and building them up, which which you know for the future. Mm-hmm. And this is backward looking. We don't do backward looking things. You right, know. So. Justice building rule of law program. So different countries will want to do a little something, but that won't give you everything that you need to have a court. Stephen, you have,
0: um, I mean, I don't want to prejudice our chances of some of the projects we're trying to promote, but needless to say, uh, we are speaking to some uh, rule of law departments in in, in certain states to try and support our work on accountability. And boy, does that ring uh, ring true in terms of the priorities. But I, I think that brings... Mean I'd love to hear some of kind of how you've dealt with some of these challenges, but, you know, we've talked about the why, we've explored the how in, in, in sort of the last 30 minutes or so. But I think for me, it's really the biggest question. And that's where the question of political will comes in. Ultimately, who decides this, right? Because it very rarely is it as well-intentioned as special courts may be, and as um, domestic in nature, some of them are, and the hybrid examples that we've discussed. In my analysis, most of the concept of it is still something that's imposed by the international community. And so the the decision or the will has to come from that for the process to start rolling. And I want to pick up on the example that Marwa came, because I've been really shocked actually at some of the calls that are being made by very reputable institutions calling for, you know, a a special court to deal with, with the Russian aggression in Ukraine at the moment. And terminology that's being used. Um, I won't name the institutions because they are normally the institutions we really want to align with and they're very strong on human rights. But we, you know, we've got people calling very reputable organizations, people calling for a special court, quote, to punish Russian crimes. And so I think for me that this is the demand now. It just speaks so loudly to the politicization of, of this process, but also to the double standard, because obviously the context in which we're looking at Russia is aggression. And we know that for years there's been a demand to have a, you know, a special court on aggression as a wide concept that would, would look at aggression in different contexts. And for very obvious reasons, that has never taken root as a project, because those who are normally the aggressors are also the ones who are likely to be the supporters of these uh, initiatives at at some point um, or have a significant blocking power, at least to stop them. But when it comes to the Russian context, we're very comfortable talking about a special court dealing with aggression. And that double standard, which I think is really, you know, from us, and if I just want to throw this out there, to be totally open in this conversation from those of us from the global South uh, who have been advocating for this and where the crimes are committed in a a non-European country, this idea that a special court can be whipped up within a week of, you know, and the demand for it to be within a week, and from such reputable sources, and in such a punitive way, as opposed to an investigative way, even, I think I would like to take a moment to explore this kind of d- double standard in talking about these matters and how problematic that is, and whether you have had any kind of thoughts on that. Because yes, the previous knowledge, the previous kind of narrative was, these things are rather colonial; they happen from the global north against. it States in the global South, but what we've seen now is actually when there is demand from the global South for these matters, it's, it's disregarded because it's not a priority, and the funding becomes an issue, and the resource becomes an issue, and the political will becomes an issue. But in this context, in the Ukraine context, the galvanization of the forces to make this happen is has been positively astounding for the purposes of Ukraine, but quite depressing for those of us who've been working on this issue for a decade in the context of Libya um, with very little acknowledgement of it even as an option, really.
2: Yeah. And certainly we, we see all of that. I mean, I tend to, you know, I was an ambassador at large for six years and that involved me in all sorts of policy meetings in the National Security Council and where, you know, uh, it was never don't instrumentalize justice for a particular political end. Mm. That was the only way I was going to get any wind in my sails at all, <laughs> et cetera. And <laughs> so the business of trying to achieve justice in a world of states is to try to build a group of states that will blow hard enough to begin to move your boat, <laughs> you know, and then, and then you want to make sure that you establish the right crew to steer it <laughs> and you want to be able to steer it into more neutral waters, et cetera. But that's the dynamic in these areas. Now, do keep in mind if you have the Habre thing has some aspects in it that are, of course, quite different in the sense that in the end, the justice is delivered, you know, 3000 kilometers from, you know, uh, from Chad and <laughs> in Dakar. But it was victims who pushed it. They went out and, and told their story. They had tremendously strong evidence of, of, of Habre's own implication in the crimes, reports that went to him, notes in his own hand that impressed. Mm. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, they tried to get Senegal to do it. Senegal's appeals court knocked it down Wad, really didn't want to do it. Uh, but then they went to Belgium and got Belgium to start an investigation. Uh, then the United States, uh, under Bush, was trying to stop these uh, uh, universal jurisdiction prosecutions. But the victims there lobbied the uh, the, the parliament in, in Belgium and got uh, an exemption, a grandfathering in <laughs> of that case. And then uh, there's uh, Belgium saying to Senegal, extradite him or prosecute him, and taking the case to the ICJ, and, you know, and the African Union saying uh, to Senegal, try him in the name of Africa. Mm. And then the ECOWAS court saying, no, you can't do it in Senegal because it's a retroactive statute. Mm -hmm. And then a process led led by a Benin judge uh, that, that, you know, that we negotiated with, et cetera, that established these extraordinary chambers. And this was for a guy who uh, who was, you know, armed and trained as forces Mm -hmm. to fight. Gaddafi when he was down down in Faya Larjo in the in the 80s when you were very young (laughs) let's put it that way and so you know France and the United States supported uh Habre didn't support him in his in his in his mass torture of his in his paranoia in terms of who his ethnic enemies were but um it was possible then eventually get a court (laughs) in Africa with African judges indeed one international one uh from Burkina Faso, who since passed, uh, who did a really good job in trial and a Malian judge on appeal, Mm. you know, with the locals. And you did have eventually Habri convicted and sentenced to life. And he since, you know, passed uh, away in in Senegalese custody. Mm. So that was an example of the victims (laughs) and a a coalition. But, uh, you know, not enormous resistance (laughs) anywhere to it happening and to a transition in terms of the attitude of American and French and other actors. So you could get something done. That's much more uh, exceptional. The problem you have with a situation like Libya is there will be European countries who say, well, we've got the ICC guy in there. (laughs) We're paying for that already. (laughs) Let them do it. Why should we invest, uh, again, uh, some other money? Mm. Now, there's an answer on that one. In CAR, in the Central African Republic, which, of course, is, uh, you know, nobody's priority. When Obama uh, gave a speech in Dakar um, that was piped into Bangui, that was the first time a president of the United States had ever uttered the name of the country, (laughs) you know, (laughs) etc. So, you know, there was a peacekeeping mission there, a very nasty conflict that became almost genocidal in a way in terms of uh, the Muslim and Christian aspects of it. Mm. And um, people very concerned, and so eventually it's possible to establish, using an interim parliament uh, and a fair amount of pressure from some of us, uh, establish a special court in the, uh, there that would handle cases of a senior level that the ICC wasn't handling. But that court's been you know, profoundly underfunded. It's relied on, on some of the peacekeeping mission to, uh, to fund it. It also um, uh, suffered from the fact that it was developed around a, a kind of a French hyper-classical model It doesn't really work that well and never had actually been implemented in country. And you end up with so many judges and so many layers that they've got, you know, 23 people under investigation and they haven't arrested anybody yet. And so you would have designed something a little different, I think, if you could have. But as I say, it was possible there to do that sort of thing. Obviously, uh, Libya is a lot more important and you've got uh, states lined up on one side or the other of, of the civil war i'm not talking about the Gaddafi civil war but the one with uh, you know uh, the, the government and, and, and tripoli and, and haftar's movement and all of that is complicating things on the other hand countries do want the situation to stabilize and and they do want peace if for no better reason than uh, you know resources from from libya and the migrant crisis and so i think it's possible to develop a plan that would do the job. Now, but what that would take in this situation is something that's often also lacking, which is the domestic structure doesn't ask for it because the people involved in the domestic structure are afraid of it. <laughs> and so, but if if it became part of a peace agreement, now of course you've got a peace agreement in hybrid court in South Sudan. Uh, but the leaders who signed it didn't want it at all <laughs> it was pushed on them and they're still and they've done everything that they can to obstruct it and the african union hasn't pushed it as they could have so it has to be a, a sort of a, a thing that the public and others demand in the process and continue to push for and there has to be a champion uh, within the government or a group that continue to, to to bring this idea forward, and and they have to have their own reasons, not to, you know, and that has to relate both to the past and to the future, and and if you have that and you present it in a unified way, then you could have something that would still fit in with the ICC approach, because obviously the ICC approach isn't going anywhere, uh, at least.
0: uh, Well, first of all, you get full marks for answering that question (laughs) because it actually not only answered that question, but my my very next question was to pick up on the ICC mandate and um, how frustrating it has been uh, for us. I mean, you know, LFJL worked with the ICC from day one in 2011 in gathering evidence and We've only in 11 years seen arrest warrants issued for five persons. One has won his admissibility challenge. Three have died since then. And the remaining one is running for president. Mm-hmm. And so it's not really the most successful track record. And Frank, you know, it, I always get in trouble with my colleagues for saying this, but I would be very fine with losing the ICC mandate in Libya if we can get a more effective Mechanism, Because at the moment, what I see in the ICC is effectively an impediment to justice in Libya, because every time we discuss other avenues, including universal jurisdiction, which you t- touched upon with um, some war crime tribunals and states or the context of, you know, discussing the options of special or hybrid courts, the response we always get is the ICC is dealing with it. And so for, for me, over the last few years, what's become clear is, in fact, in some very... Um, twisted way, the ICC's mandate has enshrined impunity in the country, because it's it's eliminating other other options. And so I, I wonder whether there is something to be explored then. I can't believe I've you you have you two have done such a a job on me that I'm now actually entertaining this prospect. Because I've always been like this is just never going to happen. Let's think about practical advocacy. But now I feel compelled to push for a special court a little bit more and join Marwa's ranks. So. Thanks, Stephen, for that.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna take I'm gonna take Stephen with me on advocacy missions from now on.
0: <laughs> you feel this is a safe place to name people, Stephen. So do do please feel feel safe to name people.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, I but I don't want to, you know, the, the menu, uh, the, the charge uh, sheet and who you would actually charge would be different, uh, I'm sure, if I were a prosecutor, <laughs> et cetera, and one would, would, would try to move this forward out of, a, you know, sort of April, May 2011, uh, you know, kind of stasis that it's been in, with the exception of uh, the, the folly who, who, who died and, and on which uh, the ICC is very proud of having. And appropriately of having built the case on, on, on social media without having, you know, stepped foot in the country. And sometimes that's possible, uh, you know, but obviously he's not with us anymore. He'd be a lot happier alive in The Hague, I think. So, uh, but in any <laughs> case, the, uh, <laughs> the question of, uh, of, of, let's not deal too much with these individual cases. I just want to say that if the Libyan civil society came forward and said, you know, and of course, who is civil society, and what groups, and who's involved, and uh, people are competitive for different reasons. But you know, one needs a more a broader idea of. We asked that the ICC terminate its case. You know, like in the in the words of Cromwell of the Long Parliament, "You've sat too long not to have done more good." You know, and so that uh, and what we want is something that will uh, you know free the ICC to you know. Uh, chase up the atrocity crimes in, in Ukraine and elsewhere, uh, while we go through a transition and have proper transitional justice in our own country, with international partners to the extent necessary, but always international partners that will phase themselves out, <laughs> etc., and and have sort of a a, a transitional justice uh, plan, uh, and 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 put that forward as uh, now obviously everybody may have their the thing they want to hang on the tree. Uh, but we know what transitional justice uh, uh, should look like, which includes you know truth and, and, and broad truth in terms of what happened uh, you know uh, uh, in the last eleven years and before. And then um, prosecutions of, of of serious offenders, and then, you know reparations of people. That were uh, that lost their loved ones, or or that are still bear the uh, scars and the wounds, uh, and and then guarantees of non recurrence in terms of you know lustration, uh, you know vetting a variety of things like that, uh, et cetera. That's what we want to do, and let's have that as as a plan. And, and we think that the prosecutions part of it can be much more effectively handled by two elements: <laughs> one, a, a special court to to handle serious offenders and those with international connections, et cetera, Mm. uh, and uh, the um, strengthening of the national system uh, to to deal with some others. And so that's the approach that we want to take and and make sort of development of that. Now, you know, obviously the ICC (laughs) uh, getting it out of there You know, it could still be, it still could be in there as as a little piece, a little capstone in that, in that prosecution strategy. I don't want to forestall that because there may be some people that really think it's important to have it. But I tend to think that, frankly, the messaging of we don't need the ICC anymore. And, uh, we urge the ICC to go on to deal with other situations which haven't had a peace plan which have and which we hope will be implemented and proper elections and all of that and and uh, they're, they're for the more acute crises and we're moving on but moving on with justice in this format and and that would be kind of a, 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 the idea of I, ICC get out um, mm. but I don't want to say that aggressively because a lot of friends at the ICC but the point is that might that, that might get you a, a lot more attention. <laughs> And ICC do your job. That's like Fatou Bensouda, you know, going to the, uh, well, how many, how, you, you sort of number the times you've been there uh, to the Sudan case where they finally do have one defendant, uh, but they reported to the security council like 30 times before they got anybody in custody uh, every six months. And so, you know, you know, that's, that, that in the end is, uh, uh, you don't want to waste the energy on it. So Stephen, can I
0: take it that the, the title for this episode should be like ICC get out, quote, Stephen <laughs> Rapp.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm suggesting that that is an option and, but, you know, I, I might be distrusted on that because I'm an American and we're not in the ICC no, in the first place. Absolutely. Get, yeah, I'm, I'm carrying, carrying on a, a trash mission, which, of course, anybody that knows me would realize that that was totally false because I'm the best friend the ICC has in the United States. And, you know, not putting any uh, accusations to you. <laughs> <laughs> their two best convictions they have are, are Ungwan and Antiganda, uh And those guys surrendered to us, you know, and, and and we delivered them to The Hague. We want the court to succeed. We want it to succeed now in the. In in, in the Ukraine context, under a 12-3 referral from the country in the 39 states, and, and the United States should be sending money to the ICC, uh, should be engaged in supporting civil society groups in the documentation. We're doing that, uh, that and we want that to succeed. Uh, that leaves aside the idea of a special court for aggression, because that's uh, <laughs> the ICC can't do mm. for, for statutory reasons. And so, uh, but the, but uh, you know, leave, leave that aside for a moment. Whether that's worth doing at all, absolutely. Uh, but yeah. but at least that piece, the ICC's uh, atrocity crime thing, should be something that the U.S. invests in. I'm saying is, I'm looking for ways to wake people up on something that's completely uh, uh, you know gone off the radar screen. And and so that's yeah. uh, I'm, pulling you, I'm pulling I'm pulling your leg, to... leg perhaps <laughs> to do it. But it it would take. Uh, a, a unity of of groups uh, mm. uh, across across the the different regions of the country, uh, et cetera, uh, and it would take discussions and and public fora and things like that uh, in ways that would um, you know be, be challenging uh, until there's truly a peaceful transition.
0: This is not how I expected this to go, but I'm quite excited and feel revitalized uh, about sort of exploring these options. One thing you did mention, and I, I want to pick up on before we uh, unfortunately wrap up is this question about building things into peace processes. So in, with another hat on, uh, I've been involved in the Libyan peace process as one of the 75 selected by the UN to lead that. And in building the roadmap, it was astounding to me. And I, I won't go on my usual rant for a long time because there's you know, a whole special episode on that in Libya matters, on the failings of the Libyan political dialogue forum. But one of the most striking elements is when we were drafting the roadmap you know, the initial draft we received, which is always prepared by the UN team, for the process to deal with transitional justice, it was entirely built on amnesties. And so the way it was phrased in the very first iteration was to say, a reconciliation process built on the general amnesty law, and I can't remember the number of the law, which is a really problematic because it's a blanket amnesty in the first place. And so it took a not insurmountable amount of effort to kind of push them to even acknowledge that there needs to be a concept of accountability and transitional justice within this transitional process that they're describing, and that it shouldn't be founded in reconciliation, but reconciliation is one element of transition. Um, and so I think I'm very motivated by seeing a way to kind of operationalize that of saying, you know, you could build in a process like this as part of the future roadmap, if there is a pro- if there's an ability for us to, you know, help negotiate that in the future. But when you have your resistance from the international facilitator or moderator to include that language, because they just want an expedient political deal, therefore putting no impetus on the parties within the country to entertain that idea even, or no requirement to even consider it, you're relying quite heavily on effectively the perpetrators or those aligned with them agreeing to be held accountable with no external pressure. And I think that always brings us back to, I think one of the challenges we face working in the context of Libya is that it is phenomenally internationalised and anything domestic is ultimately international because all the all the sides, like you correctly Saw Stephen are linked in some level to an external player, and so maybe I want to keep this upbeat approach of the power of civil society and how we can help change that narrative by thinking about how that could, imp- you know, how that could be used to, if you like move the domestic and international conversation around the peace process and linking it much more clearly to accountability, because at the moment they have been divorced entirely, the kind of process on peace. And then there's this this one basket for human rights and international humanitarian law which is effectively a working group that meets a few times a year to talk and pontificate about human rights, but has zero influence on the actual process. And so I wonder whether we can close our conversation today, although I know we now have many, many more to have on thinking of how we can influence the outcomes of a peace process to ensure that it more solidly enshrines accountability and including accountability in the form of prosecution.
2: Yeah. Well, it makes me very angry about the political actors uh, talking about amnesty. I mean, the UN recognized and, uh, you know, at the time of Lome, uh In the Sierra Leone context, when there was an amnesty, uh, they pasted on under copian and a thing that said, we don't accept this. And so that's that's the proper that's the proper role of the U.N. Under international law, the the uh, the victims of each of these crimes have the right to have their case investigated and they have the right to uh, to remedy full stop and nobody's going to change that under an agreement now they can agree and and if there's no system to do it it doesn't it doesn't get done but it's contrary to international law so the u.n can't be doing that now, i know anybody that's going on a peace plan and it's sitting across from general hoftar's people or something uh, okay well you know you're going to have to agree to be prosecuted that's going to be a very hard sell <laughs> you know etc and so you know they uh, that's too difficult and and we'll sort of kick it down the road and to some extent, from a realistic standpoint, one has to accept that. But then there has to be at least language that incorporates a process uh, going forward uh, as, as essential uh, to, uh, to ending impunity and to preventing these things from happening again. And if you don't have that, it's not worth anything, <laughs> you know, et cetera, because you just say so anybody that's a, that's a spoiler who doesn't get who gets unhappy in about three years, going to go do it again and then get an amnesty the next time? I mean, what kind of peace is that? Uh, So, you know, it has to be in there. And in most situations, it's been possible to at least get a truth commission. And of course, truth commissions can be controversial because people say, well, then anybody who confesses gets an amnesty. You know, uh, somebody who confesses can be deprioritized, I suppose, or there can be processes to redeem yourself, like in Colombia, you know, for cooperation and paying reparations and showing where the bodies are buried, et cetera, and getting house arrest instead of prison. I mean, you can, you can come up with formulas that the world accepts, but that's got to be part of it. You know, the Colombian peace plan with division in a, in a war that went been going on one way or another for 60 years you know seems to have some promise in terms of it, and it's got special jurisdiction for peace at, at the center of it also a truth commission at the center of it but at least get a truth commission so the victims can come in and talk about what happened here 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 and usually that then builds the political pressure to do something about it Now maybe that political pressure is heavily resisted like it is for instance in Liberia. But it's still got to be there. But but back to the ICC question. I mean, the ICC, people can say, well, of course, it's not. It's still in, in the business as long as there's a conflict that traces itself to 2011 and views itself as having jurisdiction on something that happens today in return for getting the ICC out. Then we need to come up with an alternative. <laughs> and that alternative should be such and such. Now, are there enough people that want the ICC out? Maybe there aren't uh because the human rights groups still want them uh, in principle and and the actors that are maybe charged by them aren't fearing, fearing them at all <laughs> etc but there could be a bit of a trade there because that's still going to be there and that's inconsistent with amnesty final thing i'll say about amnesty though is it took the special court for sierra leone to overcome the amnesty in Lomé, and that was on the books in sierra leone so uh, we prosecuted 13 people in the special court. Sierra Leone, in the end, didn't prosecute anybody that committed a crime before the date of Lomé. And so in, in 99, you know, there were a few little crimes, not little, but significant crimes. They tried to prosecute post 99 and didn't succeed. But that's uh, uh, you need to. Um, you, that's another reason legally you need a hybrid court because a hybrid court can throw that uh, uh, the legislated uh, uh, phantom statute out the window. Uh, because it'll follow international law and embassies are inconsistent with international law. So I think there needs to be a roadmap uh, toward genuine transitional justice. And if this thing has gone so far in terms of the peace plan that it's been let out, uh, that it's no longer there, then I'd I'd work on a a protocol, an addition in terms of, of transitional justice, in terms of how you deal with the ICC phasing out and the Libyan system with international partners uh, coming in, I, I think there's still hope. There always is hope on these things, and and uh, uh, if there isn't something along those lines, one's just uh, asking for further crimes in the future.
0: Stephen, you've given us a lot more work coming out of this than going into it, but um, <laughs> we fe- we certainly feel motivated. And uh, a heads up, this will now mean you hear a lot more from us and not less. But that you did that to yourself. Well, anyway, thank you so yeah. much.
2: Well, I, I haven't been back since 2012, I, I hope uh, there, there will come a day, uh, since I've been awfully close lately, uh, to, uh, to return and, and to assist in any way that I can.
0: We have that on record.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much.
4: Okay. Yeah. Have, have a great day.
0: Thank you. That was wonderful.
4: Hi, my name is Jürgen Schur, I'm with the Law Program at LFGL. Why are we talking about a special court for Libya or a hybrid court for Libya? In a way, the answer is simple, because nothing else has resulted in accountability and justice for victims to date, while the list of crimes being committed in Libya continues to grow. This is true despite an overwhelming amount of information about these crimes being collected by civil society organizations, including LFJL, by the UN, and even by the ICC. At the moment, this information does not seem to be used by authorities inside Libya to hold perpetrators to account, And the ICC is yet to show any tangible progress from when it first started to investigate over a decade ago. So how could a special court of Libya or a hybrid court for Libya help us overcome more than a decade of impunity, accomplish what other mechanisms have failed to deliver and provide long-needed justice to victims? This is one of the key questions to be answered if we are to convince decision makers that Libya needs a special court. At LFJL we are working on this and other questions together with our partners inside and outside of Libya, examining also the legal basis of a potential special court, its jurisdiction, composition, possible location, the role of victims and the required budget. A special court for Libya could have more legitimacy among Libyans than purely international mechanisms and have the added value of not being confined to the limited jurisdiction of the ICC. As we heard, it could be composed of Libyan and international lawyers, prosecutors and judges, thereby also having a direct positive effect on Libya's justice system and future transitional justice developments. Importantly, our research on perceptions of justice in Libya, which included almost 400 stakeholders across Libya, suggests that such a special Libyan international court is what many victims currently see as the best option for delivering justice and foreseeing justice to be done. next week's episode we explore
2: i went to a conference in malta some time ago and and we we, we were trying to see uh talking to countries
4: about people coming here now look uh, can i say uh, and this is what the people from Nigeria and so on said said that um uh, their people come because they,
2: they have no jobs they have no chance of a decent life
1: thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode of Libya Matters, please leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing.
0: To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters
1: is hosted by me, Marwa Mohammed, and Alham Saudi. It is produced by Demiri Media.
0: The people who put season four of Libya Matters together are May Thompson, Alexandra Azua, Marwa Mohammed, and me was made possible by contributions from the LFJL team, Mohamed Al-Masiri, Mohammed Al-Mustafa, Rawia Hamza, Christina Orsini, Mirna Nasrallah,
1: and Jürgen Sure. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ.